0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we provide our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. and I will be the moderator of today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we welcome you, and we invite you to visit us in person in the future. Details about upcoming forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. We also invite you to contact the Minneapolis Public Library for a suggested reading list on today's forum topic. I'm pleased to welcome to the forum today a man recognized internationally as both a corporate and a community leader. William George graduated with high honors from Georgia Tech before receiving his MBA with high distinction from Harvard University. He worked for the Department of Defense and was president of Litton Microwave Cooking Products before holding a series of executive positions with Honeywell in the 1980s. In 1989, Mr. George joined Medtronic, the world's leading medical technology company, best known as the manufacturer of the heart pacemaker and the automated external defibrillator. William George was elected chief executive officer in 1991 and served Medtronic in that capacity through 2001 when he left to follow other pursuits. Under his tenure, the company was admired both for its aggressive research and development spending and its financial discipline. Throughout his corporate career, William George has been an active member of his community in Minneapolis. He's past chair of numerous health and medical organizations, including the greater Twin Cities United Way, Alina Health Systems, Abbott Northwestern Hospital, he's past president of the Guthrie Theater. In the year 2000, William George was elected by the American Red Cross to be on their Board of Governors. Today, his service extends throughout the country and the world, as Mr. George is now a member of the Board of Directors of such diverse organizations as Goldman Sachs, Target Corporation, Harvard Business School, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. He's also the chair of Minnesota Thunder Pro Soccer. William George now spends his time commuting to Switzerland where he is visiting professor for management at two Swiss institutions. He's also working on a book to be published this year entitled Authentic Leadership. William George visits the forum at a time when perhaps our faith in the ability of business to do good works has been shaken. We welcome his remarks today on the subject of business ethics and. I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, to help me welcome to the podium, William George.
1: We live in a time of great challenge that is replete with ethical challenges on every side. Last week's tragic loss of the spaceship Columbia brought back vivid memories of my teenage years when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik and the race for outer space began. Not long thereafter, a young president, John F. Kennedy, made a commitment to put a man on the moon by 1969, a challenge that no one knew how to do. My generation was deeply inspired by the words of President Kennedy's inaugural address when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. As Kennedy said then, the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. No one in my generation will ever forget where we were on that fateful day of November 1963 when our young president was assassinated, just as all living Americans will remember where they were on September 11, 2001. Many of us idealistically took the torch that Kennedy challenged us and set out to show what we could do for our country. I was one of them. I decided to concentrate my efforts on the world of business because the enormous capacity of the pre enterprise system to organize people, to make a difference in the lives of the people it serves. In those days, I had the vision of becoming a value-centered ethical leader running a major company, and rather immodestly thought I could influence my peers to also be ethical and value-centered. Looking back at my more than 30 years in business, I realized just how fortunate I was to have the opportunity to reach my first goal in leading such a unique company as Medtronic and just how little influence I had in influencing others in my generation. The complete collapse of corporate governance and the extreme greed of certain corporate leaders exposed in the past year has made that all too clear. While at graduate school at Harvard, I led the Musser Seminars, financed by John Musser of St. Paul, called Business and Christian Ethics, in which students from the Harvard Business School, from the Episcopal Theological Seminary, and the Harvard Divinity School came together to discuss ethical topics. One person had a great influence on me, one speaker, was Robert Greenleaf, an AT&T executive, who spoke of the notion of servant leadership. And in a time of autocratic leaders, this was a whole new notion, a radical idea, that the role of leaders was to serve their followers. Coming out of business school in 1966, a number of us went to Washington to work in the federal government and to help our company, our country. And as the Vietnam War escalated, it didn't take long for our idealism to be shattered. Vietnam was followed by Watergate in the 1970s and the takeovers and junk bond scandals in the 1980s. But for those of us in the business world, all of these events pale by comparison to the corporate ethical crisis we've experienced in the past year. Thank you, Enron and Arthur Anderson. The depth of their misconduct so shook the world and awakened us that the reality that business was on the wrong track, worshipping the wrong idols, and headed for self-destruction. It took this kind of shock therapy for us to realize that something was sorely missing in our corporations. What is it? It is ethical, values-based leaders. What began as a few executives charged with violating the law quickly morphed into issues of corporate governance and the failure, complete failure, of our governance systems. But as we begin to understand these issues at a deeper level, we realize that the missing ingredient in corporations are ethical leaders committed to building authentic companies for the long term. We're all well aware that every generation has had its share of corporate thieves who break the law in order to reward themselves. But this time around, the excesses are not limited to a few. I believe very deeply that the vast majority of corporate leaders are honest people dedicated to the purpo- uh, to building their companies. But somewhere along the way, many leaders lost sight of the purpose of why they were leading and got caught up by the short-term pressures of the stock market and the opportunities it brought for personal wealth. Under these pressures and the quest for personal gain, they wound up sacrificing their values and their shareholders. Our system capitalism is built on trust, the trust that corporate leaders and boards will be good stewards of their resources and provide investors with a fair return. There can be no doubt that many leaders have violated that trust, and as a result, investors have lost confidence and withdrawn from the market. And many, many millions of people got hurt, not just the perpetrators of the crimes. But in the midst of all this, I think we have to ask the question, where, where have all the leaders gone? Where are today's version of James Burke of Johnson Johnson, Walter Riston of Citicorp, Ken Dayton of Dayton Hudson, John Whitehead of Goldman Sachs? These people not only built great enterprises, but they were statesmen in the business community and leaders who addressed societal issues. In contrast, Many of today's leaders remain silent. Are they afraid by speaking out? They may invite scrutiny of their own companies. In so doing, they give the impression that they have something to hide. Only a few CEOs, such as Henry Paulson of Goldman Sachs and Hank McKinnell of Pfizer, have had the courage to condemn these practices publicly, because they recognize that the larger issue is one of public trust in the capitalistic system. Paulson's acts were doubly courageous because he was criticizing, in effect, his customers as well as his peers. As Andy Grove, the chairman of Intel, commented recently, I find myself embarrassed and ashamed to be a businessman. Well, how do we get in this situation? Is this a recent phenomenon or have these activities been going on all along? I think what we're witnessing is the extreme excesses of the shareholder revolution that began 15 years ago. In its early stages, the pressure from shareholders did a lot of good things caused companies to trim unnecessary expenses, improve profitability, and increase cash flow. However, the financial rewards from these actions, both corporate and personal, were so great that companies and shareholders alike developed an inordinate focus on short-term gain. In a booming stock market, it all seemed to be working. And then capitalism became the victim of its own success. Instead of focusing on traditional measures like return on investment, cash flow, growth, the criterion for success became meeting the expectation of security analysts. People cut back investments just to make their earnings. They limited their company's growth in so doing. Driven by the speculators, expectations kept rising, just as companies were struggling to make their earnings. Companies that met or exceeded their magic earnings number were handsomely rewarded with ever-rising stock prices, and those that produced good results that fell slightly short of the expectations were severely punished. No wonder many CEOs went to extreme measures to satisfy their shareholders. However, I think we all know that revenues and earnings don't escalate forever, particularly in the face of operating problems, events like September 11th, and economic downturns. To offset these problems, many executives stretch the numbers and the accounting rules well beyond their intended limits. Some of these these, uh, schemes in accounting, like calling operating expenses capital equipment or booking revenues that haven't been earned, violate even the most basic rules of accounting. And now we're seeing the chickens coming home to roost. In the past five years, we've seen stock options go from modest grants to mega grants for top executives, especially CEOs. Because they had no cash impact and weren't charged against the P&L, many boards and executives felt that they were essentially free. But the problem was they effectively shifted the uh, executive's interest to get the stock price up by whatever means necessary. And many executives, realizing they couldn't keep it going, cashed in their options just before their stock collapsed. But I think the general public has to own a share in this tragedy as well, because we idealized the high-profile personalities that ran these companies. We made them into heroes. We created wealth with success and image with leadership. To our dismay, we've learned that these same celebrity CEOs have been filling up their personal coffers at shareholders' expense while destroying the pensions and life savings of thousands of people. And the media turned these short-term earnings artists into folk heroes. While making wealth, image, and star power the criteria for success, the media overlooked the many solid leaders who were building quality companies for the long term. I think we we'll remember that people like Ken Lay, Bernie Ebers, and Dennis Kozlowski were the subject of intense media worship shortly before their fall. In fact, just a year before Kozlowski was let out of his office in handcuffs for numerous violations of the law, he was cited by Business Week as being number one CEO on their list of top stocks. But these three people alone have destroyed more than $300 billion in shareholder value. Back in 1998, I met with one of these leaders to talk about acquiring a company from him. In a short space of about 20 minutes, he told me how he beat the U.S. tax system by uh, having an offshore headquarters, how he was able to justify his acquisitions by reducing employment 25% on the day the acquisition closed, and how he terminated every investment that lasted more than a year. I don't think Medtronic has ever had an investment that paid out within a year. As I walked out of my office, I held onto my wallet and decided to cancel further talks. (laughs) Because you cannot do business with people you can't trust. Now we've seen in the last six months some laws being crafted, new regulations, and I'm a strong supporter of these. But as we were talking last week with uh, the heads of the uh, Security and Exchange Commission and New York Stock Exchange, they were the first to acknowledge you cannot legislate integrity stewardship, and good governance. I think the problem is somewhere along the way we lost sight of the imperative select ethical leaders that create healthy corporations for the long term. The lessons of building great companies like uh, 3M, Coca-Cola, General Mills, Johnson & Johnson, Target, Procter & Gamble were all lost in a rush to get the stock price up. And those of us in leadership role forgot that we are fortunate to be in this role because we're stewards of the legacies we inherited from our predecessors and we're the servants of all of our stakeholders. Well, the lessons from this crisis are pretty evident. If we select people for their charisma and their ability to get the stock price up, why should we be surprised when they turn out to lack integrity? We don't need executives running corporations into the ground for personal gain. We don't need executives who are celebrities to lead our companies. And we don't need more laws. What we need our new generation leaders. We need authentic leaders with people of the highest integrity committed to building enduring organizations who have a deep sense of purpose and are true to their core values. We need leaders who have the courage to build their companies to meet the needs of all their stakeholders, their employees, their customers, their communities, as well as their shareholders, and who recognize the importance of their role in society. Now, I'd be the first to say that leading a major organization or even a smaller one is no easy task. It can be very lonely at the top. Leaders are pulled in many different directions. Yet at the same time, you have to keep a clear vision of where you're going. Amory Houghton, one of the most thoughtful members of the United States Congress, tells the story of when he was selected as CEO of Corning Glass. His predecessor came to him and said, Amo, you should think of your job as two circles. There's a large outer circle, and those are all the laws and regulations that this corporation must live within. But inside that large outer circle is a much smaller inner circle. Amo, those are your core values. Just make darn sure that when you make decisions on behalf of this company, you don't go beyond your inner circle. Well, we're all painfully aware of the leaders who push beyond the outer circle and push way beyond the law. But I think we haven't talked about the more worrisome category of people who went beyond and outside of their core values and pushed that little inner circle way out to the outside by engaging in marginal practices, even if they were legal, such as cutting back your long-term investments to make the short-term numbers, bending the compensation rules to pay executives in spite of failed performance or termination, using accounting tricks to meet the quarterly earnings, shipping marginal quality products, or booking revenues before they're earned. This list we could go on and on with. Now, all of us who sit in the leader's chair feel the pressure to perform. I know I felt it every day as problems mounted or our sales lagged. And I also knew that the livelihood of tens of thousands of employees, millions of patients, and millions of shareholders rested on my shoulders and those of our executive team. And I was also aware of the penalties for not performing. No one wants to go on CNBC to say they miss their earnings, even by a penalty. What happens is little by little, step by step, the pressures to succeed can pull us away from our core values just as we are reinforced for our success in the marketplace. The, success, the irony is the more successful they are, the more we're tempted to take shortcuts to keep it going. The rewards, compensation increases, stock option gains, executive perks, positive stories in the media, admiring comments from our peers, all reinforce our actions and drive us to keep this string going. In a recent interview with Fortune, Novartis CEO Daniel Vassella talked about these pressures. He said, once you get under the domination of making the quarter, even unwittingly, you start to compromise in the gray areas of your business. Perhaps you begin to sacrifice things that are vital for your company over the long term. The culprit that drives the success isn't the fear of failure so much as it is the craving for success. For the tyranny of quarterly earnings is a tyranny that is imposed from within for many of us the idea of being a successful manager is intoxicating. It's a pattern of celebration leading to belief that leads to distortion. When you achieve good results, you're celebrated, and you begin to believe that the center, the person at the center of all that champagne toasting is yourself. You believe that what's written is really true. Now, Vassell is one of the finest leaders I know, and uh, I think that all of us, like he has, and I've observed him up close being on his board, have to resist those pressures while continuing to perform, especially when things aren't going well. In Medtronic, we used to do this with our test with our team. Would we feel comfortable if this whole story and this whole conversation were published in The New York Times tomorrow morning with a big headline? And if we weren't, we went back and reevaluated what we were doing. Leaders are defined by their values and their character. The values of an ethical leader are shaped by one's personal beliefs and developed through study, consultation, and introspection and a lifetime of experience. Values define a leader's moral compass. Ethical leaders know that their true north of their compass is the difference between right and wrong, and they have a deep sense of the right thing to do. But if you don't have a moral compass, you can wind up like those people that are facing prison sentences today. Integrity is the one value every leader must have. It's not just the absence of lying, but it's telling the whole truth, as painful as, it's, as it may be. Because without complete integrity, Why would anyone ever want to follow you and how can they trust you? Now, when you ask leaders about their values, most of them uh, espouse solid values. Many of them meet with their employees regularly and uh, implore them to follow the company's code of conduct. But there's nothing worse than leaders who say one thing and do another or set double standards for themselves and their employees. If you want to see cynicism among your employees, uh, just watch what happens when the top executives behave in a way different that's inconsistent with the company's values. Many business schools and academic institutions today are not teaching values as part of leadership development. Some offer courses on ethics, but often these are theoretical or deal strictly with the law because they shy away from discussing values. Others erroneously assume that their students already have good values. What they fail to realize is the importance of solidifying your values through continual study and dialogue. As Enron was collapsing in the fall of 2001, the Boston Globe Published an article by a classmate of former Enron CEO Jeff Skilling describing how, when he and Skilling were in class together at business school, Skilling would talk about the role of the CEO was to push, uh, define lo- loopholes in the regulations, take advantage of them, and push beyond the law wherever he could and let the regulators catch him. Does that sound familiar? 25 years later, he got caught and his company wound up in bankruptcy. One of my role models for an ethical leader is Max Dupree, the former. Uh, CEO of Herman Miller. Uh, he's a very modest man who has a deep concern for serving others, and he's true to his values in every aspect of his life. His book, Leadership as an Art, is one of the jewels of business leadership. He also subscribes to Greenleaf's views, and he goes on to say that the leader's first job is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between, the leader must become a servant and a debtor. He believes that corporations should be a community of people. And he paid his salary to me not more than 20 times the average worker. Whereas today, you see corporate leaders being paid four to 500 times the average worker. And he believes that if you do that, you're going to damage your credibility as a leader. Over the last several decades, businesses evolved from maximizing the physical output of their workers to engaging the minds of their employees. To succeed in this century, I believe companies are going to have to engage the hearts of their employees through a sense of purpose. One of the most heartfelt leaders I know is Marilyn Nelson, who is Chair and CEO of the Carlson Companies here in Minnesota. When she became several years ago, a CEO several years ago, she had inherited an organization that was not known for its empathy towards employees and customers. Shortly after taking over, she created a program called Carlson Cares and became the company's role model for caring and empathy. She changed the company's culture using her personal passion, her motivational skills, and her sincere interest in her employees and her customers taking the lead on sales calls, and being out there with their employees every day. Her positive energy has transformed Carlson, built its customer relations, accelerated its growth, and improved the bottom line. Another compelling example of a leader with a heart is Mother Teresa. Many of us have thought of her as simply a nun who reached out to the poor, yet we're not aware that she had more than 4,000 missionaries working uh, by 1990, supporting missionaries of charity in over 450 centers. Uh, with a clear mission to reach out to the destitute in the streets and offer wholehearted service to the poorest of the poor. I doubt any of us will ever be like Mother Teresa, but her example is one that can inspire us all. In his recent book, Geeks and Geezers*, Warren Bennis talks about leaders passing through a crucible that tests them to the depths of their being, and that only in that crucible, that experience of the crucible, do you learn what your real values are and whether you'll be pressured to compromise them and how you deal with conflicts between them. In these situations, you find the true north of your moral compass. And having survived, you realize you can take on any challenge as a leader. My wife, Penny, experienced her crucible in 1996 when she went through a very difficult experience with breast cancer and went through the traditional treatment of surgery, chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, and a lifetime of not knowing whether the cancer will come back. gradually overcame her fears and took back control of her life by creating a healing path of her own. One of her steps on that was to participate in a vision quest in southwestern Utah. Fasting alone in the desert for four days and four nights, she found a new power within her and a renewed sense of purpose in her life. She gave up her practice of psychology and has devoted herself to the cause of integrative medicine, the holistic approach to bringing mind, body, heart, and spirit together in healing. Now her new passion and inner powers enabling her to take on leadership roles she never believed she was capable as she tries to improve the way medicine is taught and practiced. Some rising leaders avoid the challenge of the crucible. I refer to them as shooting stars and golden boys. Shooting stars move up so rapidly they never take time to learn from their mistakes, look themselves in the mirror. A year or two in any job, they're ready to move on long before they had to face the test of their own decisions. When they see the crucible coming, their anxiety rises, and so does the urgency to move on. If they don't get promoted, they go to the next company. But then someday, they do make it to the top. And now they're confronted with ethical challenges in an overwhelming set of problems for which they're not prepared. Without the wisdom of the crucible, they cannot cope. And they're prone to do bizarre things on their way to self-destruction. The golden boy follows a similar path to success, using charm, style, and good looks to get ahead, always setting the bar performance low enough to appear in control. Insiders observe that he never gets his hands dirty. Uh, But when he reaches the top, he too is unprepared for the real world challenges and is vulnerable to making major mistakes and putting his company at risk. My personal time in the Crucible, at least of my career, came uh, in the late 90s, or excuse me, late 80s. When I was at Honeywell, uh, I think we all have an experience in our careers of hitting the wall. And mine came uh, at a time that uh, really allowed me to go back and transform my career, because it forced me to look inside myself and acknowledge my shortcomings, and most importantly, realize that for me, I was on the wrong path. At that time, I was on my way to the top of Honeywell. And what began as a huge promotion turned into a decision to reassess my career and to move in a different direction. At the time, I was responsible for nine divisions, 18,000 employees, and a whole raft of problems. I'd gotten the reputation of being Mr. Fix-It. Well, I knew how to turn businesses around, but it never turned me on. Uh, and during this period, I really started questioning, was this the right place for me? I felt out of sync with the slow-moving uh, Honeywell culture, and I found myself more becoming more concerned with appearances and attire than I did with just being myself. What I reluctantly had to face up to is that Honeywell was changing me more than I was changing it. I, yes, it hit the wall, but I was too proud to face it. One beautiful day in the fall, I was driving around to my home near Lake of the Isles, and I had a daydream, Uh, but I tell you it was not a pretty one. I saw myself staying in Honeywell for a few years, leaving, moving to another city to become CEO of some big company, forcing my wife to quit her job, my sons to change schools, and all of us leaving the community that we loved. And I said to myself, why would we want to do that? Just to satisfy my ego? My experience that day enabled me to realize that I had to overcome my fixation of being a CEO of a very large company. I realized I was letting my ego get in the way of my values. And if indeed I was in a trap, it was a trap of my own making. Sometimes when we're in this situation, it's very hard to see the opportunity that's staring us right in the face. I'd had three times the opportunity to join Medtronic and turned them down because I didn't feel it was a large enough company for them. Yet the opportunity kept nagging at me. Why did, had I done the right thing, it finally dawned on me that I was letting my ego get in the way of my values. In, da- in this process, I was in danger of losing my own soul. And I also realized that I had sold Medtronic short. So I kept going back to that vision I'd had as a teenager of being a values-centered leader of, a major, of an important company that was doing good works. And what better place to do that than Medtronic? So I called Winwall, the CEO of Medtronic, and asked him to reopen the door. And five months later, walked through the door as Medtronic's new president. But I have to say, I was blessed, because rarely in life do we get uh, the fourth opportunity to correct the first three mistakes. <laughs> Many leaders believe that ethics is a topic discussed in business schools, but not a part of everyday business. In fact, ethical dilemmas and pitfalls surround almost every significant decision a leader makes. Sometimes the issues are moral, sometimes legal, sometimes personal. And we have to recognize the challenge and recognizing these dilemmas from the outset, rather than just making a decision, not even seeing the ethical implications. Uh, You know, most companies have something their employees have to sign a code of conduct, say they're acting ethically. But you'll never know an organization's values or an individual's until they're tested in that crucible. And how leaders respond to these challenges, as painful as they may be, will set the real ethical tone I saw this happen at Lytton Industries. Uh, we had our board out here in Minnesota. We were giving a presentation about the growth of the microwave business, and I was talking about our International Code of Ethics. And I noticed the CEO was scowling at me. And later at the coffee break, I overheard a conversation with him and a peer who was heading up the oil exploration business, in which he said to him, you know, the audit committee is very upset about your audit report. And he said, I want to tell you one thing. He said, I know you have to do what you have to do to get the business, but if you ever put it in writing again, you're fired. And it was then that I knew I was working for the wrong company, because the message was clear as a bell: It's okay to make payoffs. just don't get caught." Sometimes, excellent companies fail to respond to a crisis, like the disaster of Firestone and Ford with the Ford Explorers and the number of people who died as a result. Or Exxon Valdez, when they didn't go to the site of the, uh, the oil spill and wound up with a five billion legal judgment against them. Even a great company like Intel can go into the denial. With the Pentium II or the the, uh, the Pentium chip disaster, but later respond and get back. Last year I was discussing the Enron Arthur Anderson debacle with my students, and I used Arthur Andersen example. Here's a company that built up its reputation for fifty years as a great corporation, hired the best people, and then they lost it all in a day. One of my students raised his hands. He said, "No, Bill, you're wrong about that. They didn't lose it in a day. This has been happening for five to ten years, where they consistently compromise their values." to generate more business from their clients. And what looks to you as a giant step in destroying documents really was just a small step for them in a series of inappropriate and unethical behaviors. He was correct. Little violations now can lead to larger ones later on. If you want to look at a positive example of how to handle an ethical crisis, look at what James Burke did when he was CEO of Johnson & Johnson, faced with the death of several people from a terrorist lacing uh, Tylenol caplets with arsenic and people died. And he pulled them all off the market, cost his company a lot of money, and now Johnson Johnson is one of the most admired companies in the world because he had the responsibility to do the right thing. And by the way, Tylenol has restored itself in the marketplace and come back. Well, I faced a similar test my first year at Medtronic, much to my surprise. I had appointed a new head of Europe, uh, and about six months later, our auditor and general counsel show up in my office to tell me that they'd found a secret promotion fund that uh, this person had been keeping in the subsidiary company he was running before he became president of Europe. And so we hired an investigator, looked into it, and found out indeed that there was a fund set up uh, that uh, went into a Swiss bank account on behalf of this Italian distributor, presumably, although we never found the actual purpose because we never got beyond the bank account, for the purpose of paying off doctors. So I called him up and said, you've got to come to Minneapolis, I want to talk to you. And so I asked him about the fund. He said, you don't want to know about that fund. And I said, indeed, I do. And he said, well, that's trouble with you Americans. You're always trying to impose your values on us Europeans. I said, no, John, these are not American values. These are Medtronic values. You signed a statement saying that you're part of these values all around the globe, and you're going to have to resign. And we went out and made this all public, notified all the bodies, because we wanted to be clear that these were not Medtronic values. Yes, we'd had a deviation, and we dealt with it. And I think in the end we came out better for dealing with it honestly and openly and being very transparent about it. But I can tell you personally it was very hard to handle because I promoted him, And I had to look myself in the mirror and say, I didn't look closely enough at this person's values. I didn't check them out carefully enough. I looked at his business skills and not the human being within. I remember back when we were at Harvard, we used to get in debates about this same subject, about whether US ethical standards should apply globally. And I was always on the side of arguing they should. I think today it's even more important because of the global nature of business. I can tell you as a leader you sleep a lot better if you know that everyone is adhering to the same set of values. But nevertheless, the temptations to stretch the rules to meet competitive practices are always there, especially in developing countries. And we learned the hard way at Medtronic that upholding an ethical standard takes a lot more than written statements, or even going around the world and preaching clear verbal messages. You also have to have a system of compliance. And you have to have open communications where people can tell you what's going on. The people at the firing line know what's going on and they're not comfortable with the behavior. They have to know that management will support them when they adhere to the standard and lose a contract or a customer. Well, I can tell you when I first arrived at Medtronic I was unprepared for this. But when we confronted with these problems we did take an aggressive proactive approach. And because all this occurred before Medtronic's big growth spurt globally, we could then Having corrected them, even though it took several years, we could then expand the company's business much more rapidly with the security and knowing that everyone's adhering to the same standards. Well, let me close my remarks with these lines from T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration. and At the end of all of our exploring, we'll be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. 10 years ago, my father died in peace at the age of 93. My older son graduated from high school both in the same week. For Penny and me, it was the passing of a generation. As one of my best friends told me, he said, Bill, you just moved up to the front pew. Well, it won't be long before a new generation of leaders is asked to move to the front pew and take charge. Or perhaps they already have been. My advice is don't wait to be asked. Don't wait until you get the top job. In thinking about whether to step up and lead, ask yourself these two simple questions. If not me, then who? If not now, then when? The world needs your leadership today. Being an ethical person in today's world is not sufficient into itself. As a leader, you have to have the moral courage to step up and take a stand, and then be prepared to suffer the wrath of those who disagree with you or lack the courage to stand alone against the tide. Just as President Kennedy said 40 years ago, the torch of leadership is being passed to a new generation of leaders. To this generation, the trumpet has sounded. If you listen carefully, you will hear the clarion call to lead in a different way than my generation of business leaders has. To be motivated by your mission, not your money. To tap into your values, not your ego. To connect with others through your heart, not your persona. To live with the discipline that you would be proud to read about your behavior on the front page of the New York Times. Recently, a young leader complained that his generation seemed to lack any causes to be passionate about. I suggested he open his eyes and observe the world around him. Seeing human needs these days does not take a magnifying glass. You don't have to look far to see the pain and suffering caused by poverty, abuse, and discrimination. The need for healing in body and in spirit. The desire for healthy families. The decline in our environment and misuse of our natural resources hunger we all have for security and a sense of well-being. Do any of these challenges strike a resonance deep within you? Can you find your passion and couple it with the ability to make a difference in the world? Consider these challenges society faces as you think about where to devote your passions. We live in a world of enormous wealth, yet three-quarters of the world's population has barely enough to survive. With our greater affluence has come, increased mental and physical abuse of the helpless and the vulnerable. 40 years ago, the Civil Rights Movement began. And now, 40 years later, discrimination is still rampant in all levels of our society. We have the greatest medical technology in history, yet the rate of disease continues to grow. We abuse our natural resources, and we ignore the growing contamination of our rivers, our open spaces, our environment, and yes, our cities. We no longer feel safe or secure in our cities after dark. We stand idly by as our leaders focus more on serving themselves than on serving their customers. We merge companies to create ever larger organizations and then we treat the people who made them successful like robots. We treat quality of life as if it were a distraction from the real work of people. We ignore the deeper meanings of life and the source of all joy. As an ethical, value-centered leaders, you can change these things. You only need to be your own person to lead with purpose and passion, to be true to your values, and to lead with your heart. As much as we want happy, secure secure futures for our families and ourselves, we've learned the hard way that money alone is not sufficient to provide either security or happiness. But making a difference in the lives of others can bring unlimited joy. Leading a life of significant service can bring unlimited fulfillment. And sharing yourself with others authentically can bring unlimited love. What is more important in our lives than joy, fulfillment, and love? When we experience them, we arrive at the place where we started, and we know it for the first time. Thank you.
0: Thank you, William George. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the moderator of today's forum. Our guest is corporate and community leader William George, who has just spoken on the topic of business ethics. While the ushers here in the sanctuary collect questions from our audience at Westminster, we would like to remind our Minnesota public radio audience that forums are free and open to the public, for information about upcoming forums, you can visit us online at www.ewestminster.org. We also invite you to contact the Minnesota, excuse me, Minneapolis Public Library for a suggested reading list on today's topic. In these challenging economic times, we wish to express our sincere appreciation to the General Mills, Kellogg, Baker, and Star Tribune Foundations. Their financial support, along with the donations of interested and support of individual listeners is more critical than ever before. Thank you. Mr. George, if you will return to the pulpit, we will begin with the questions. First question concerns the motivation behind the free market system. If the motivating force behind capitalism and business is to accumulate wealth for oneself, you may wish to question that motivation. But if that is the motivation, can we reasonably expect anything other than selfish behavior from corporations and their leaders? Is there a different way to view the role of money makers in society?
1: I I think it's a very good question because I think we've distorted the role of corporations. Corporations are chartered by society. Medtronic is chartered separately in every country in which we operate. It's a privilege. And we have a a right. We have to serve society in that role. In so doing, we have to provide good products and services to to our customers. We have to provide jobs for our employees, we have to serve our communities, and we have to serve our shareholders. And I think if we ignore the first three of those and only look at strictly at the shareholders, in the end we will destroy whatever value we've created. Because I think that the things go hand in hand. You can't set out to make money and in the long term do it. Your goal has to be something greater than that, which I think is service to your customers.
0: As a member of the board of directors of Harvard Business School, what observations can you offer about the attitudes of people going into business today? What motivates them? And if greed is a motivator, how can we change that?
1: Well, I certainly think in the last uh, 10 years or so, it's been an increasing motivator. There's been too money, too much money out there too easily. And I was talking with the dean last week. I made a special trip up there to talk to him about uh, the role that I think Harvard uniquely has, but any business school does, to make sure that leaders are uh, that students are getting taught and provided good opportunities to learn about becoming leaders, to learn about values and ethics, and to test those in, this, in the school setting, if you will, before they go off into the world. Because if they don't get that, I think it's nonsense to say they're already so, so well solidified. No, this is something that has to be constantly developed. I continually work at developing my values and ethical standards and testing those against the real world. And if we only think, see these as schools and making money, we're going to have more disasters like we've had in the last couple of years.
0: Would you comment on the possibility of legislation which would uh, legally bind a corporation to be responsible about the environment, to their workers, to the communities in which they operate, as well as to their shareholders, and thereby support, mandate ethical leadership?
1: I, I don't think you can legislate. I don't think you can legislate ethics or integrity. I think you can only do it by developing people who have a sense of right and wrong. Of course there can be punishment for violating the law to contaminate the environment we saw the case with GE and the Hudson River you know these cases in and, and Exxon Valdez of course there have to be laws to, to to constraints but I think my whole argument is we who work in the corporate world have to take responsibility and provide the leadership within to do these things and I don't think it can be done strictly by a set of laws I support the laws that have been put in place but as I said these alone are not going to ensure integrity and good governance
0: question about your emphasis on values and leadership, particularly in this highly competitive culture. Can you respond to this value? To be anything other than number one is to be a failure.
1: (laughs) Well, I I used to be a tennis player and, you know, I played in a lot of tennis tournaments and it wasn't often that I was the number one left at the end of the day, but I had a pretty good experience playing. So I think Yes, uh, I'm a very competitive person and if I go out to enter into a new business, I want to be number one and I want to work for an organization that's on top, but I think it's totally unrealistic to think that that's what's important. I think we have to get back to basic values of why are we in business in the first place and whom are we serving. That's Greenleaf's original idea is about being servant leaders. And if we can stay with these notions, we won't destroy corporations by our own greed and our own selfishness. But I think that requires a significant vetting process for our leaders. My wife has pointed out that many of the leaders who are now being given criminal charges were never vetted like they would be at a a General Mills or a, or a, a, a 3M. They haven't gone through that process. And I think that's really important to ensure that we have the right caliber of leaders. It was interesting that Procter & Gamble got rid of their CEO because he deviated so far from the company's culture and values and now is a very successful CEO.
0: Question following up on that, uh, speaking about servant leaders, how can companies choose such other-centered people and ensure that they remain that way?
1: Well, at Medtronic, we, first of all, I think you can assess them. You can do assessment when you hire people, which Medtronic does, use professional assessors to hire, uh, when you hire people. But then in the environment, I think you have to surround them and say, this is the way the game is played. And we're in business not to serve our shareholders. We're in business to serve patients at Medtronic. That's our mission, to restore people to full life and health. Does that turn you on? I once had a high-level person that I hired erroneously, and it didn't turn him on, and he went away after a few days. And it was a relief, because it didn't excite him. He was fully competent, but it wasn't his thing. At Medtronic, we have two major training programs. One's called the Medtronic Leader, which is really leading from within. We're not teaching leadership skills. We're not teaching attributes of leadership. We're teaching who are you as a person, who are you as a leader. And then our top-level program for all officers is called the Medtronic Program on Ethics and Values. And it goes to the great books and the classics and the Bible to look what are the source of those values and then talk about them. And these are very powerful companies, uh, programs that spread far beyond the participants in the company.
0: Another follow up then on that question about your own personal practices. What have you done or what do you continue to do to help you keep in touch with your core values and your moral compass?
1: Well, I think it's something you have to do every day, all the way from meditating, Couple of times a day to kind of pull within myself to a prayer life, to a religious life, that uh, being part of a community of people that supports this. I have a men's group that I meet with uh, every Wednesday morning. We've been meeting uh, for 27 years, about seven or eight of us, and these are incredibly valuable sessions because we can share ideas, share problems we have. When I was going through that career change I described, that was the, after my wife. That was the first group I went to to get there. Their ideas and support, and not support, but inputs so of whether I was doing the right thing or not. And I think you need to have that. You need to be part of groups, but you also need to have your inner life. And if we lose sight of that, if it's all, excuse me, the outer life, and it's strictly going on CNBC or doing CNN programs or, you know, sitting for your picture on the cover of some magazine, you can really lose sight of uh, who you are. But I also think it's service to the community. Service community is more important to, in many ways, to the givers than to the receivers. And sometimes we look at that, oh, we're doing these great things for people, we're providing food and shelter. No, it helps us as well because it puts us in touch with the lives of diverse people all around us.
0: A question, comparing the practices and and, uh, uh, different business procedures of Europeans and North Americans. Are there differences between sitting on a board of a European company like Novartis and an American company like Medtronic with regard to ethical issues?
1: Well, I think we're seeing a convergence now. I was uh, at a meeting with a group of European governance leaders and American governance leaders last week that was called in New York, and it was interesting to see people saying we're really converging around a set of principles so we can all operate. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. In my first uh, Novartis board meeting, uh, we published a new code of conduct said that there would be no bribes paid to government officials, and I had a lot of problem with that. I said, "Well, what about non-government officials?" And you know, this has all been revised now. Novartis publishes their their governance and. Uh, principles and their codes of conduct. and uh, Goldman Sachs is now publishing for the first time. And I think this transparency is bringing all of us closer together, because no one today wants to be outside the mainstream of governance. Maybe they did two years ago. They didn't care. But that's pulling us together. And I think there is a coming together, perhaps not on the political and uh, geopolitical world, but I think in the business world there's much more of coming together of a common set of principles. And I think that's good, because we operate all around the world and we trade in each other's stock exchanges
0: a question about holding companies accountable. To ensure that her money is invested ethically, what questions should an investor ask of companies? How does the investor learn this information?
1: Well, this is really tough, and I think you have to go beyond your stockbroker, nothing wrong with stockbrokers, I have a very good stockbroker, but to find out who you're investing in, what's the governance that's coming, who's the leadership? I I used to say, look, as an individual investor, I'll never be as smarter as those people on Wall Street. So I'm going to invest in leaders I believe in, a guy like Dick Kovacevic at Wells Fargo, who's, uh, even though he's moved to San Francisco, has created 6,000 more jobs in this community, the guy who's building for the long term. And so I found every time I went away from that, I got burned. And so I tend to invest in leaders I believe in, and people I think are the caliber leaders that I can trust to do a good job. And maybe other people make more money by investing in the hot shots, but I think if you're the kind of investor that wants to see your, a return on your money over the long term, that's a better, uh, better way to do it. And people, you know, that's something they don't even talk about. I don't know why, but you never see that written up, never see it talked about in terms of investment.
0: Has corporate America been sufficiently shaken by the recent scandals to change its practices? Or does the deception at highest corporate levels continue?
1: We have been sufficiently shaken to change our governance practices, and every corporation I know is responding to this. I think the question is have the attitudes of the leaders been significantly changed? or will the selection of leaders in the future be significantly changed so we choose a different kind of leader? A leader who's really committed as a steward to build for the long term? Or will we fall back to promoting the hotshots who showed good results for the last three quarters and think they're really superior to the person over here who's building for the long term? That's an unanswered question, and that's the one I'm trying to get out on the table in my book and uh, say that it's really, you can write the governance rules, people can comply with them, they will help, but you can't legislate integrity, and stewardship. And that's what I think is really important, in who we select as our leaders.
0: This final question, certainly an appropriate one, given the situation we face in the world today. What do you think should be the role of multinational co- companies in promoting global peace and justice?
1: Well, if you watch the stock market, every time we talk about war, the stock market goes down. So there are a lot of smart people who know a lot more about money than I do that, uh, that, that realize that uh, this is not a good thing, that, in business we like a stable environment we like an open environment so we can trade with the chinese and the russians and the south africans we want an open environment and i think business leaders have a responsibility to stand up and speak on its behalf now we elect leaders to make those terrible decisions about war and peace but i think in the end we all have to come together behind a sense of peace for all people and that is the only way to have uh thriving economies a healthy globe, less tensions between people. And so I think every leader, business or otherwise, has to stand up and advocate on behalf of a stable uh, world uh, that cares for all of its people.
0: Thank you very much. William George.
1: Thank you.